so it's more that kind of like death by a thousand cuts kind of a thing for these couples. And it just feels like here we go again, yet another place that you have disappointed me or yet another place I've disappointed you. Followed by here we go again, yet another place where you're angry at me. Like yeah. I am doing the best I can. I'm really trying. Why are you always angry? You know, they both feel powerless. The non-ADHD spouse feels powerless to create a more reliable partner, but the ADHD spouse feels powerless to create a satisfied, not angry partner. And, you know, then they fall away from being on the same team. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hi, everyone. This is Ann. And today, we're going to talk about a topic that we typically associate with kids. When you think about the idea of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, often draws out an image of young children having difficulties in school, having overactive behaviors. And we don't often get a chance to think about how this difficulty manifests through the lifetime and into adulthood. But today's guest, Ari Tuckman, has written multiple books on this topic about how adult manifestations of ADHD impact our relationships, our work life, etc. He's written multiple books. One is ADHD After Dark, Better Sex Life, Better Relationships. And he's also written More Attention, Less Deficit. And he actually has a podcast by that same title and has done quite well with it because I think this is a very compelling topic for many people. It's much more prevalent than we think. And, you know, you can see it in relationships sometimes manifest as one individual feeling like they have to hold down the responsibility and keep things organized. And the other one may come across as the irresponsible, impulsive one. And these can be lifetime kinds of conflicts until we have a deeper understanding about what's happening. And Dr. Tuckman is does a really good job helping us bring this to life and what to do about it. So he is a psychologist as well as a certified sex therapist. So he brings how ADHD can even impact us all the way into the bedroom. So for some of you, this is not a diagnosis. If some of you listen to this, it may be a little triggery because it may all of a sudden bring some insight into somebody you love or maybe insight into yourself. And if it does, please kind of seek some help and some consultation about that. And also you might, if, if this rings a bell for you personally or somebody you love, think about doing a more formal assessment if it might help you do some interventions. So let's get started. All right. Hi, Ari. Welcome to the show. It is really cool to be here. I'm really excited to see where we go because you guys really kind of go deep and I'm really interested to see where we go with this topic. So it was a pleasure to be here. So I'm really excited to have you on the show. We have not, as many topics as we've covered, we haven't actually really dove deep at all into ADHD. And this is a specialty. You're a psychologist, a certified sex therapist, and a, have a deep specialty in ADHD. But here's the thing. Nobody goes into ADHD. That's the problem is we all get kind of siloed into our area of interest. And then we don't sort of bring in enough of these other areas. So, you know, like this is just sort of the, the way of 
people, I think, often. And part of what's been really cool for me, having spent 20 years in the world of ADHD siloed myself, is, you know, now that I'm doing much more in ADHD and relationships and sex, it's giving me an excuse, basically, to take ADHD into these new places where it isn't being talked about as much as it should be. And yet it's still there. You know, it's not like it doesn't get talked about because it isn't there. It just doesn't get talked about or it gets talked about in other ways with other labels and other explanations, but not through the lens of ADHD. Well, there's so much that many therapists don't understand about adult ADHD. You know, when we think about ADHD, we're often thinking about the diagnosis of kids in our practice or kids of our clients, etc., And I think your writing really highlights how deeply ADHD can affect us as individuals, as adults, and in our relationships. It was really enlightening for me to be thinking about it from that slant in going over some of the things you've written. Yeah, and it really does. I mean, the thing about it is ADHD is still thought of as a kid thing. Yeah, there's a lot of kids who have ADHD, but there's also a lot of adults who have ADHD. Like there's kids with ADHD at some point, you know, let the clock run long enough, they become adults with ADHD. But often they're not identified, they're not diagnosed correctly, they're diagnosed with other things instead. But general population prevalence of ADHD in adults is, I don't know, call it 4%, 1 in 25. But if you're a therapist, if you're looking at who shows up for therapy, it is more than 4%, sometimes a lot more than 4%. And the level of comorbidity tends to be quite high. So folks with ADHD tend to be more anxious, more depressed, more substance use issues, higher rates of bipolar disorder, marital discord, all these other things that are the fallout of undiagnosed ADHD makes for a lot more folks with ADHD walking through your office than one in 25. And if you don't look for it, you can't find it. And if you don't find it, you can't address it in the most effective ways, which is both to the detriment of the client who doesn't get the best service that they, you know, would hope to get. But frankly, also for us as therapists, like I hate feeling ineffective with my clients. I hate feeling like I'm not doing good for them, right? So like there's something to be said for knowing what to look for so that you can be the best therapist you can be. Well, let's talk about that. What does ADHD, what would we see in our office or in our partners or in ourselves that would kind of bring to light that we're struggling with ADHD? First of all, not everybody with ADHD has those kind of typical like hyperactive symptoms. Some people do, but not everybody does. But if you were hyperactive as a kid, you're probably a lot less hyperactive as an adult. So if that is your picture of ADHD, you're not going to see a lot of that in your adult caseload. More so what's the struggle for adults with ADHD is more inattentive symptoms. So stuff like troubles with time management, disorganization, forgetfulness, procrastination, misplacing things. This is how it shows up in adulthood. So it's a little quieter, so to speak, compared to like that hyperactive boy but it's potentially much more problematic. So this causes trouble not only like in college or in the workplace, but also at home, also in relationships. So if you're doing couples therapy, it's very easy for the ADHD partner to be the bad guy, so to speak. And, you know, the long suffering non-ADHD partner who's like, oh, see what I have to put up with? Look how hard I'm working here. I have to keep up with everything. Right. If not for me all the children would be dead and the house would be on fire kind of thing, right? Right. 
It's not completely wrong. Like there is indeed truth to that. They're not lying. But still, in any relationship, you're only half of it. You know, each person has half of the relationship. But, you know, one of the things, just to sort of slip this in a little bit tangentially, is if you have somebody in your office as a therapist or if you are a person in the world, if you hear someone say, yeah, my kid with ADHD or I have a niece or nephew or some other genetically related relative, you need to go ding, 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 ding and pause for a moment and say, hmm, does this person seem like they might have ADHD? Because given the strong genetics, the odds are pretty good that, yeah, they might. So are they showing up late to appointments? So they forget things? Do they not follow through? Do they, you know, ramble a little bit in how they tell a story? Things like that. Do you have any statistics on that offhand about the relationship between parent-child genetic connection between ADHD? So if you're looking at first-degree relatives, meaning your parents, your siblings, and your kids, you know, you share about 50% of your genes with these people. And, you know, like I said, average adult prevalence is about 4%. It's a little higher in childhood, but you're looking at probably about a quarter. So that's like a five-fold increase at least. Could be even more than a quarter, depending on exactly how you measure it. But you know, what it means is when you find one person in a family with ADHD, it is quite unlikely that you don't find somebody else who also has ADHD. And sometimes you find multiple people. So both kids and one of the, one of the parents, for example. I have found that at times that is actually could lead to, in some ways, some defensiveness on the parent's part, because some of those characteristics that you name being disorganized, forgetting things, Oftentimes, a parent might say, well, I did that, and I was fine. You know, I couldn't keep up with things, and look at me. And so, it can be really tough. Some of those characteristics that you just named can be those that in our culture, you can feel a lot of shame for just having to feel like you can't keep your attention, that you forget things, that you're disorganized. I mean, as you were saying it, of course, I was identifying with a lot of those characteristics, but <laughs> pretty pretty confident that isn't, that isn't me, because we could all, like, how... How extreme do you usually look for in your adult clients to say, "Mm, this is kind of over the edge? Yeah, and you're absolutely right. You know, like these are normal human situations and experiences. And, you know, like anything, it's a question of kind of relative to your peers. We all have moments where we feel kind of down, like, you know, I'm a little bit depressed about, I don't know, something for a day. And then tomorrow I feel okay. Like, did I have a major depression? No. But if you can't get out of bed for six months, okay, yeah, I think we can say that that's sufficient enough. And then at some point we draw a line in between those two things and say, there, now it counts as depression. In the same way, we draw a line when it comes to these things, when it comes to ADHD, in that those folks who have ADHD, it's been consistent across time and across circumstances. So now at 30, let's say, but also in college at 20, also in elementary school at 10, in this job they're in, but also in that last job, but also when they're at home. So you can really see it permeate their life. It's not just a little bit here, but not so much there. And because it's so ever present, that's part of what makes ADHD so impactful in the sense that, you know, it impacts everything from school performance and college graduation rates, for example, it impacts career attainment, 
lifelong earnings. It impacts things like car accidents, blood cholesterol levels, and other physical health indicators, relationship satisfaction, unplanned pregnancies. ADHD is always there. So it impacts many, many, many parts of a person's life and their family members and romantic partners by proxy. You know, it's such a wonderful thing to kind of be out there and speaking of, and I'm really glad to have you on the podcast because it can be so painful to have gone through your life and feeling like you could make your career, but somehow can't quite have the follow through and just the devastation to one's self-esteem if it goes undiagnosed and unnoticed. And I even have a a good friend of mine who recently, as a middle-aged woman, has really, really discovered this for herself and has started to medicate, had gone to somebody who noticed it and was able to identify it. And since she's been on medication, it's been a life changer for her, not only in her everyday experience, but really about how she sees herself and how she understands herself. Yeah. And it absolutely can be. There are people who, when they finally get that diagnosis, it's like all of a sudden the light goes on. It's like, oh my God, now finally I know why was this all so hard for me? Why am I so smart in some ways and I do these dumb things that I shoot myself in the foot? Like, why do I keep doing these things? One of the early books on adult ADHD had this just amazing, amazing title, which was, you mean I'm not lazy, stupid, or crazy? And the thing is, if ADHD is not an option to explain the struggles that you're having, like the sad reality is, what you're left with is some variant on lazy, stupid, or crazy, like none of which you can feel particularly good about, as opposed to if you say, oh, this is a neurological information processing disorder that impacts my ability, I sometimes say, to convert intentions reliably into actions. Folks with ADHD know what to do, but they're not consistent always about doing it. So they shoot themselves in the foot in ways that even they might have a hard time explaining and they certainly feel bad about. You know, if you can understand it in that way, it gives a little bit more hope, like, oh, now I understand. Now I know what are the things I can do. You know, I'm a psychologist, I don't write prescriptions, but I gotta say, I'm a big proponent of stimulant medication for ADHD, reason being it tends to work really quite well, despite what you might read in some media outlets, like risks and side effects tend to be quite low. They are not addictive if you use them appropriately, and they actually will for many people, reduce substance abuse problems when you treat their ADHD first. So it doesn't solve all of life's problems, but it kind of puts you in the strike zone in a much better way with the medication, kind of as your friend is experiencing herself. Can you explain why when somebody's working with something that maybe increases their motor, like you think of ADHD as somebody being a little hyper, although not always, because it could just be an attention deficit, and yet we give them a stimulant. Could you explain to our listeners kind of how that works? Right. It's totally counterintuitive, but what the stimulants do, they're basically like brake fluid. They give the person with ADHD a little bit more brakes that they can put on the brakes in the case of hyperactive kids before acting. But even in terms of distractible adults, it puts on the brakes in terms of their thoughts, like they're less distracted by the stimuli around them. They have a better ability to pause in that flash of a moment and say, you know what, 
nope, that's not the thing right now. Put that aside, finish the expense report, that's what you're doing now. You can return that text later. Or walking through the grocery store, oh, right, milk, that definitely, I need milk, not like, oh, right, coffee, we need coffee too. Oh, and as long as I'm here in the coffee aisle, let's see what kind of K-cups they have. Oh, and as long as we're here, oh, hazelnut, I haven't seen that in a little while, maybe I'll, right, and like, away we go, and that idea of milk, it's kind of pushed out of their attention, out of their working memory, out of their awareness. And then it's only when they get home that they go, darn it, the milk, you know, much to the dismay of their partner and kids and themselves, right? They're not passive aggressive. They're not anti-milk. Just it fell off of their radar at the wrong moment. And the medication just helps hold it onto the radar a little bit better. Yeah, and bringing in that, oh my gosh, and I get home and I don't have it, and how often that can wreak havoc, as I mentioned earlier, just with self-perception and like, oh my God, I'm such an idiot, how can I not hold that? And some really devastating self-thoughts, which can increase anxiety. But I'm also thinking about the wife at home or the husband at home thinking, no, you didn't forget, you just don't think about the milk because I needed it. You remembered to send those emails while you're standing in the store, And so it can really impact, I imagine, the, well, I don't imagine, I see it all the time in my practice, impact the relationship from that kind of perspective. And that's exactly right. That, you know, it's sort of, even if you don't think to yourself, I'm an idiot, why did I forget it? Don't worry, your disappointed partner at home will tell you, either you're an (laughs) idiot or you're selfish, right? Right. So, you know, it does become this thing where for the non-ADHD partner, Like, I can empathize. I get it. I was counting on you to get the milk. Now, I will grant you, this is not like life-saving medicine. We're not going to die without milk. But like, seriously, I am too busy. I don't need one more thing, including whiny kids who can't have cereal tomorrow. So it's more that kind of like death by a thousand cuts kind of a thing for these couples. And it just feels like here we go again, yet another place that you have disappointed me or yet another place I've disappointed you, followed by here we go again, yet another place where you're angry at me. Like I am doing the best I can. I'm really trying. Why are you always angry? You know, they both feel powerless. The non-ADHD spouse feels powerless to create a more reliable partner, but the ADHD spouse feels powerless to create a satisfied, not angry partner. And, you know, then they fall away from being on the same team to now they're on different teams. Now they're fighting against each other. And it's not just about, well, how do we get milk for tomorrow? Now it becomes, you know, here we go again, blah, blah, blah. You're never, you're always, you know, and they're stuck. Right. And there can be such polarization with that. And I, it, somebody for ADHD that probably their whole life has heard, I can't believe you've let me down again. And that can easily trigger into their implicit memory of always feeling like a failure or always missing the boat on this if they don't recognize it. And, you know, with that implicit response could be either, you know, as we talk about the pot going down and some depression or really up in some reactive anger. Why is everybody always seeing this? That's so painful. It is. You know, ADHD is a neurological condition and there's no amount of therapy that's going to change your brain wiring in that regard. However, that neurology drives so much psychology that folks with ADHD untreated 
tend to have certain kinds of experiences, much more so than folks without ADHD. Now, granted, we all have certain, lots of certain kinds of experiences for all sorts of, you know, a million reasons of who your parents are and where you grew up and were you born second or first or 10th or whatever. But, you know, ADHD in general terms tends to create certain situations that folks with ADHD are more often on the receiving end of negative feedback. You did something you shouldn't have done or you didn't do something you should have. So it absolutely can drive that angry defensive reactivity or that self-flagellating, depressive, you know, resignation. And often, I imagine, fluctuations between the two of them, you know, the reaction in the presence of the immediate shame stimuli and then just devastation, like, why bother? We often see that in kids. I think the why bother, the undiagnosed kid that just feels like, I think in my experience too, one of the things that's so hard is that when somebody with ADHD is focused and you have their attention, they can be so capable and so intelligent and so brilliant that it's almost impossible to reconcile that with the, I just told you I was going to do it. I walked out and didn't do it without feeling like as the non-ADHD person feeling like it feels intentional or lazy or hurtful or uncaring. Right. And that right there is it, is that if you were never able to focus really well on anything, then nobody would judge you for it, almost. You know, they're just like, oh, well, you know, oh, he or she is. Oh, well, what are you going to do? But the fact that, like, folks with ADHD, when their brain turns on, when they're engaged, when they're interested, maybe when the heat of the moment is on, whatever, they can be phenomenal. You know, like they bring their best to the moment. But the problem is that then they get held to that standard in every subsequent moment. So it is easy for the non-ADHD partner to kind of take it personally. You know, you were so funny and charismatic with that neighbor we like hardly talked to. And then like you come inside and I lose you in your phone for an hour. Like, how about like, what, what am I like, you know, chopped liver? Like, what's the saying? You know, like, how about, how about a little tension my way? And it does look like there's a choice being made. And I won't say there never ever is because like folks with ADHD have their terrible moments like we all do, but it's not only a choice or it's a choice that's also partially influenced by the dynamic. Like if I'm the person with ADHD, I'm hesitant to approach you because you're too often angry or it starts out a lovely moment and then somehow we come around to some complaint or criticism or some shortcoming on my part, like, no thanks, I'd rather hide in my phone. Right. You know, thinking compassionately also for the non-ADHD partner, you know, if you don't understand that, how painful that is to feel forgotten or to see the entertaining conversation, then they walk in and they're on their computer within five minutes, that can be really painful and can trigger all sorts of things in the non-ADHD partner. Exactly. It's sort of like, well, maybe this is as good as I'm going to get. Maybe I don't deserve a better marriage. Or maybe, maybe this is what marriage is. Like, I don't know. Maybe my friends just don't complain as much about it. But I, I don't know. Maybe all marriages are sort of like this. So, you know, like so much gets kind of provoked in these situations. And there are obviously, as all situations, there are some ways to respond that are better and some ways that are worse. But Often the easier ones are worse and the harder ones are better, which is why you and I have a job that doesn't involve 
doing something else, right? right? If people were awesome at doing the better, harder things, we'd have to find something else to make a buck. So yeah, I sometimes say that ADHD doesn't create new problems. It just exacerbates the universal ones. So the universal struggles that any couple has of how do we negotiate different desires, different ways of doing things, different ways of being. How do we divide responsibilities? How to negotiate differences between us? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, like, and that's universal for any couple, ADHD and non, two men, two women, two whatever, five mm-hmm. whatever, you know, that is universal stuff. But the ADHD, it just makes it bigger and harder. So if as a couple, you can really negotiate that well and get to a good place, you will both be much better off for it. It just might be that you're going to have to work a little bit harder at it. But, you know, life sometimes brings things. It's kind of like if you have a sick parent, like that will have a strain on your relationship. If you have a sick kid, that'll be a strain. If there's financial issues, if you live in an area that has its own kind of social problems or whatever in that, that will have a strain. So like ADHD is not unique at all in that way. It just brings its own particular blend of challenges. And as the non-ADHD partners, you know, looking at themselves and what are their own personal challenges is such a strong recommendation, right? Like, so your partner may struggle with these kind of deficits that you'll need to work together as a team, but what are your deficits? What do you bring to the table in this more equalizing manner? Yeah. And, you know, often this is not always true, but at least based on who walks through my doors, which is not a random sample of the population, but there's this sort of like joke in the field that those with attention deficit tend to marry those with attention excess, right? So there's a complementarity there. But, you know, like I think we see compliments in other ways in our romantic partners. And when it works well, it's awesome. Cause like you're bringing something I'm bad at and I'm bringing something you're bad at in between us, we got it all covered. But when we struggle, the differences become even more difficult. So the obvious half of these couples doing better is for the person with ADHD to kind of get on top of things a bit more, step up a bit more, be more reliable and consistent. Do you have any specific recommendations when you're thinking about that? Do you have any specific recommendations that come to mind? Certainly, like I said, I'm a big proponent of medication, but also really learning, both partners, learning about ADHD, finding the better strategies that really do work the best so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. But, you know, the other less obvious half of finding happiness for these couples is for the non-ADHD partner to learn how to step back, how to accept some uncertainty, how to manage their own anxiety, how to choose their battles. Here are the things that really are important, can't let that one go. And here are some things, damn it, I mean, okay, I guess I can let that one, if I must, I could let that one go. You know, so the happiness is not, you're gonna take a pill and your ADHD will all go away and then miraculously we'll agree on everything. You know, because the couples with no ADHD, they don't agree on everything. So like, I don't know why that would be, you know, an expectation, you know, but it's also for the non-ADHD partner to be more clear about, here's what I need from you. I'm gonna approach you respectfully, but assertively, I'm going to speak for what I need. I'm going to understand that you might do it a little bit differently. I'm going to be reasonable about my expectations of like, what do I take on and what do you take on? So let's divide based on who's going to do it best and yet still create a balance in the relationship. So I think this is how both partners become better people 
you know, like one can speak honestly and the other can listen honestly and they can negotiate out those differences and still get the best of what they each have to offer. Yeah, that's a wonderful recommendation. I think of also when you're doing that to think about the idea of generosity, you know, like if you're ADHD partner or if you are the ADHD individual and it's the milk that is going to be forgotten, like how do you strategize together to understand as well as, you know, when you walk by the pair of shoes in the middle of the floor over and over and over again, no matter how many times you've made that request, at some point, is it just a generous thing to say, you know what, that's not his or her strength. I'm going to pick the shoes up and you know what, it may just be what I do. And that's okay, because I also am going to look for the five or six things that he or she does for me that aren't my greatest strengths, instead of thinking of quid pro quo, you know, like it's like bean count. Well, and some of that generosity is maybe even to oneself. I am tired of me being frustrated about your shoes. And I've come to the realization you suck at shoes. I'm tired of waiting for you to get good at shoes. So I have now decided I'm either going to just kick your shoes into the corner and, you know, myself and then like, fine, whatever, no harm, no foul, or I'm going to ignore them, or I'm just going to pick them up and put them where they need to be because I am happier. Forget you. You don't care. Like, let's be honest. I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for me. Like I will be happier and not resent you. And then we're both better. Now, if the shoes is like the biggest thing, okay, you can choose that. Like, honey, this is the most important thing to me. I need to find a way for you to be better at it. Or maybe I just need you to acknowledge the fact that like, yeah, I get it. That's totally annoying, but I'm doing the best I can. But maybe it's other, maybe I don't want to use my chips, so to speak, on the shoes. Maybe there's bigger, more important things that I would like to use my limited number of chips on, just like you have a limited number of chips to use on me. But that's part of like, that is a thing that we need to do in couples is figure out like, what is really the most important to me? And what's the stuff that isn't as important? And I think that sometimes, you know, stupid things like shoes are just like the tip of the iceberg of a lot of other stuff. So maybe we need to get into that stuff and not waste time talking about the shoes. Or for what's been built up. And so coming from a compassionate place, you know, oh, that milk likely wasn't intentional in the shoes or something that just trying to keep up with that may be overwhelming. And just the approach of compassion and understanding, like what you were saying earlier, is like reading not just the ADHD partner learning about how this affects, but the non-ADHD partner really educating themselves to say, oh, this is actually not intentional. This isn't lack of love. This isn't... Yeah, and some of it, you know, some of that pick up milk on your way home from work at six, you know, maybe some of that point of intervention is at 8 a.m. when you go, oh, man, we're almost out of milk. Hey, uh, grab some on the way home. Don't yell it across the house. Don't yell it when they're running out the door and then magically think that it's going to happen. You know, so maybe it's a thing of like, I got to go, but send me a text or leave me a voicemail at work or something like that. So the non-ADHD partner does something that makes it more likely it's going to happen. Or the partner with ADHD says, okay, you know what? I am now sending myself an email to my work email. As I'm running out the door, I'm just going to send a quick email. And that's a way that I am signaling I am taking this seriously. Because you can't just run out and then say, I forgot. 
I mean, you can, but if you didn't put any effort at all into trying to remember, it's like that I forgot, like, where's, you only get a couple of those, you know, for a where's thin. But maybe it's also a thing for the non-ADHD partner to say, you know what, I'm going to give them a call at around quarter to six on their drive home to remind, like, I'm not going to count on them remembering from 10 hours ago. Friendly, nice call. Hey, honey, hope you're good. By the way, grab some milk. Oh, okay. Thanks for letting me know. I'm not going to get angry and defensive about you being controlling and micromanaging me. Like I'm going to say, oh, right. Yeah, no, that's cool. I appreciate that. Let's say even then the milk is forgotten. For the person with ADHD to manage their own emotional response to it, their own you know, shame, disappointment, frustration, whatever, manage their response so they can give it, you know, empathic, like, oh, darn it. You know what? That's on me. Like, I totally, I, I got caught up in a call or in a podcast or something. I just, uh. and then from the non-ADHD partner to manage their emotions and not unload the stress of the day on the forgotten milk. And then, then we have a question, like, do I run out to the corner store and grab a thing of milk? Like, I don't know, maybe. You know, or maybe the answer is, you know what, forget it. It's not worth it. We'll live without milk for a day. But you're approaching it as a team, right? And that's like, I love what you're saying about as much as we want for the person to have own self-compassion for what they're struggling with and want their partner to really understand, you also want repair and accountability. So you, hey, you know what, you did ask me and I got distracted. I know that must be hard for you when I do that. I really don't mean to. But one statement of, I know that must be hard on you, that I tend to do that is not saying, you know, I do that. So quit getting upset at me. It's like, you know, yes, that is a frustrating thing that you ask me and I forget, you know, and the other individual being able, I I like to call it on the podcast, like statements of credibility. You forgot the milk because, you know, we still want their own experience. The individual that you said, you mentioned the one that is overly attentive often ends up with somebody that's lack of attentive and that overly attentive can forget to actually identify their own feelings unless they're being critical because they're upset. So being able to kind of go, that really actually is hard on me when you forget that. And I totally get that you don't do it on purpose. So you're like, yes, I exist. And so do you. And right there, we've got a team in a way dealing with this together. Well, it's that differentiation and it's holding the two truths. I feel really frustrated about lack of milk. And I also understand that you did your best. It just didn't work out. You know, we can hold both of these truths to be true and not have to, you know, use angry self-righteousness to express our needs, you know, which is kind of a cover for vulnerability You know, so it's easy to jump into that angry mode. And, you know, it's like that accountability is exactly like you said, for the person with ADHD to take accountability and acknowledge it, but for the non-ADHD partner to take accountability for their reaction. You know, it's an angering moment, but how you choose to respond, how you choose to act is a different question. You can feel whatever you feel, but what you do with it? And the question is, does it help? Maybe it doesn't. And is it about the milk or is it about your own implicit frustrations about not being remembered or recalled in other places in your life and, uh, you know, your, your level of reaction? You know, I wanted to jump before we run out of time. One of the things that you engage in is an online survey 
over three, I guess now 4,000, you mentioned individuals with ADHD, non-ADHD, but learning about how ADHD may impact our relationships in our sexual relationships. Yeah. You know, I wanted to write a book. I'd written a few books on ADHD. They're really much more kind of like practical skills and diagnosis and treatment for clinicians, but then practical skills for folks with ADHD. And I wanted to write a book on how it impacts some, a couple's relationship when you have one ADHD partner, one non, but also how it impacts their sex life, because that is such an important part of ongoing relationships. And yet, no one will be surprised. There was no research on it. So I had to take a bit of a detour and create my own research. So I put together this online survey for these mixed couples. And, you know, as you said, I got at the time I, when I pulled the data to write the book, I had like 3,000 respondents. Now it's like 4,000. I think what it speaks to is the fact that people are interested in this topic, that they gave their time to an unpaid survey. You know, there's a lot of really interesting things that came out of it, and it kind of formed the backbone of the book, ADHD After Dark. And the premise of the book is that we know that overall relationship satisfaction and sexual satisfaction overlap by about two-thirds, give or take, on the person. So the more happy you are in one, more happy you're going to be in the other. And, you know, the thought I have is that Couples who are already struggling too much by day do not need extra struggles at night and can benefit all the more from the good connection, the good feelings that come from, you know, good sexual encounters, especially over the long haul. So if you're feeling good with each other and the milk gets forgotten, like nobody loves it, but like whatever, okay, we can move on. But if you're already struggling and you're already feeling disconnected, that milk becomes like the straw that breaks the camel's back. So it's that teamwork promoting aspect of good sexual connection that makes it so important. But obviously to keep your sex life running well, especially again in long-term relationships, requires doing that important relationship work and that important individual work so that you both become and stay good partners. And as you mentioned that example, I could see how we're feeling about our partner and ourselves is so impactful in how we feel sexually. And if you're thinking that your partner can't remember you and forgets and is charismatic with everyone else, but not you and doesn't bring the milk and then wants to have a sexual relationship later, it can be a real block to say, wait, so now you're ready to pay attention to me. Now you're going to give me your focus I'm wondering if that came out in any of your survey, that kind of dynamic, or what what did come out in your survey? I mean, it definitely did. You know, that was one of the issues is the whole idea of, you know, you don't pay attention to me until you want sex. But also the flip side came out, like you're angry too often. Like, I, mm-hmm. I don't want to approach you sexually or I don't feel comfortable being open about my fantasies or, you know, I don't feel generous when I'm not in the mood. You know, one of the things that was really interesting is, I mean, I ask people lots of like 72 questions. I ask them lots of questions, which enables me to do all sorts of really interesting analysis. One of the things that came out is the couples who felt that their partner was putting in the most effort on managing ADHD, meaning their ADHD, the partner's ADHD, whatever, those who felt their partner was putting in the most effort had sex two-thirds more often than the folks who thought their partner was putting in the least amount of effort. So basically from like once a week to about almost twice a week. 
Obviously, that is a proxy measure. Like if you think your partner is being a good, generous teammate and working hard in this particular way, they're probably working hard in a lot of other ways. And by the way, if they're working hard, it's because they also think that you're working hard. Like ain't nothing for free, you know? So these are the couples who both put in the effort. They're generous in bed. They're generous outside of bed. They work well together. Their sex life is a positive part of an otherwise positive relationship. So there's a lot to be gained by working on your relationship if you want a better sex life. And there's a lot to be gained by working on your sex life if you want to have a better relationship. Yeah, I know that makes a lot of sense. What specific things did you feel like you learned? Were you surprised by any of the data with these couples? Any outcomes that you were surprised by? You know, one of the things that was really surprising to me, well, there's, oh man, there's so much stuff. But one of the things that was surprising to me was the idea that, you know, the kind of common chestnut, so to speak, was ADHD folks would benefit from having a little bit of medication on board during sexual encounters. And that it'll help them focus and be less distracted, maybe a bit less impulsive, a little more aware of their partner. So in theory, that all makes sense. Reality based on what people said was, eh, not necessarily. There were some people who did find it helpful. There are some people who found it not so helpful. And most people, like 43%, found it neither helpful nor unhelpful. On the one hand, if you are someone who, let's say, gets too distracted during a sexual encounter, makes it harder to focus and therefore reach orgasm, fine, a little bit medication might be helpful. If you're someone who finds that it's hard to get to the sexual encounters to kind of mentally transition into that sexual mode, maybe a little medication is helpful. But what was interesting was when I asked people about the 25 potential barriers to a better sex life, good news is the five smallest barriers were all related to various aspects of enjoying the encounter itself. So once you get there, it's usually pretty good. The biggest barriers were related to either not enough time or energy for sex or not enough good feelings towards each other for sex. So the way that ADHD impacts a couple's sex life is less about the sex itself and more about what happens before and after the sex that makes people want to have sex again. How do you see that is different from any couple out there that maybe not be struggling with ADHD, like the amount of time and the good feelings. Did you find anything unique about specifically ADHD that stands out more? So I think in general, it just, it's again, it's that exacerbation of the universal. You know, any busy couple, time, energy is always going to be an issue and good feelings in the sense of like, ugh, I'm so stressed out. I wish you would step up so I could be less stressed out. Except, of course, you're wishing the same about me. So, so that's just a same old thing for every couple except, you know, the house on the block where one partner is ADHD will feel it more so and therefore need to be that much more diligent about how they manage that stuff earlier in the day so that there is time or energy to have sex that night or in the morning or whatever, you know. But the way that ADHD impacts a couple's sex life during the sex itself, it was interesting. This was a thing that I didn't predict it, but I'm also not surprised knowing what I know about ADHD generally. So in this survey, I had 12 questions that asked about some aspect of what I sort of lumped together and, and called sexual eagerness. So things like desired sexual frequency, masturbation frequency, porn use frequency, 
How do they feel about their own porn use? How do they feel about their partner's porn use? Self-ratings of kinkiness, history of or desire for consensual non-monogamy, you know, infidelity, blah, 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 right? So like mm-hmm. 12 questions total. Those with ADHD keeping gender constant rated themselves higher on 10 out of 12 and tied on the other two. So okay. folks with ADHD are just as in general, they are more influenced by the stimuli in the world around them and more influenced by their own thoughts inside their own head. They are also, it seems, based on this data, more attuned to the sexual stimuli in the world around them and sexual thoughts and desires within their own head. Are you meaning that during their sexual experience, they tend to be more preoccupied with the sexual thoughts around them and to be more stimulated by porn than a a non-ADHD person? It's more just sort of, not necessarily during a sexual encounter itself, but just sort of in general. I'll just use like a generic example that, you know, if some attractive person walks by, someone with ADHD might notice them more and get stuck on them a little bit more, or their thoughts roll around their mind like, wow, that person was really hot which then might then make them a bit more interested in doing something sexual with Mm -hmm. that person, with themselves, with their partner, whatever, right? That they're more attuned to that sexual feeling or they're more reactive to those sexual stimuli. Do you think that they're more likely to be impulsive to act on such thoughts? Is that what you're saying as well? I mean, is there, they are higher likelihood to ask for or request to uh, act on those thoughts. Do you think? I think they are. And, you know, some of that is in relation to sexual activity with their partner, that the folks with ADHD tended to have higher, you know, desired sexual frequencies compared to the non-ADHD folks. So in this case, women versus women, men versus men. But also folks with ADHD are more likely to have physical infidelities, like hookups, more likely to have emotional infidelities. You know, so yeah, it does show up and not just within the couple relationship, but also extra couple or extramarital, which is obviously problematic. So the good news of this, the sort of positive side of the coin of this is, especially for long-term couples where passion and sex tends to fade with time. It takes a bit more conscious effort, I think, to keep it you know, good. Having someone who's more attuned to sexuality, who has a bit of a higher drive, might actually be a good thing because it keeps sex a little bit more front and center if that couple is doing well with each other. Now, if you're doing badly with each other, then it becomes, you know, even worse, you know, because it's yet another disappointment in the relationship. Well, and depending, I guess, on what they're doing with the thoughts and that are coming to them, whether they're impulsively acting it out or bringing it into the relationship for an open dialogue to say, you know, bringing their own sense of sexuality and desire more into the relationship. Exactly. So it's like anything else, like whether it's helpful or not helpful depends on what, what do you do with it? Where do you challenge it? How do you act on it? I mean, desire discrepancies where one person has a much higher desire than the other or greater desire for novelty or greater desire for certain specific kinds of acts or whatever, you know, those can be real challenge to couples. Those are hard conversations sometimes to have. But in a way, they're not any different than where are we going out to dinner tonight, except there's probably more emotional loading to that than there is to like, do we go Italian or Indian? 
those are times where if you're already struggling in other parts of the relationship and already not on the same team in other parts, it's that much harder to be vulnerable in this way or to be generous and hear what your partner is saying without freaking out or just like, oh, I give so much to you. I, I don't have anything left to give this thing also. Right. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Did you find that there was a difference in pornography as well? You mentioned the other thoughts. So, so you found uh, more acknowledgement of desire for pornography watching in ADHD than non-HD samples? Yeah, so men with ADHD watch more porn than men without. I think that was only a little bit. But also women with ADHD watch more porn than women without. Now, what I don't know is, that do they watch it alone? Do they watch it with a partner in terms of any of this stuff? But also, how do they feel about their own porn use? How do they feel about their partner's porn use? So porn, again, not neither good nor bad, but how do you use it? I mean, porn's not curing cancer, let's be honest, but it's also not destroying the world and taking over you know, our libidos or anything either. So again, an important place for couples to be able to talk, to be able to understand each other, to be able to create a sustainable agreement and then live that sustainable agreement. But in couples with a high desire discrepancy, sometimes just saying like, you know what, you go take care of you sometimes and don't and like leave me alone. And then the other times we're going to do something together and it's going to be great. That's actually a pretty good solution for a lot of couples, you know, now, whether or not porn is a part of that is a maybe a little bit of a different discussion where there's some generosity to be had. Like I'm not up for the full production, you know, with the fireworks and the, and the you know, lights and the rockets and the band and everything else, but I'll pitch in somehow in some way to your sexual experience. And the happiest couples were much better able to be generous, sexually generous when not in the mood themselves, which I think is a, you know, it's a reflection of generosity in other ways, you know, that they're receiving generosity in other ways. Well, and also if they're, just as we spoke before, if it's a discussion that feels non-shaming and more like a team and a connection rather than kind of a shaming process, you know, I can't believe you're asking me when you don't do anything for me, et cetera, et cetera. So broadening the dialogue around this is is huge. And I think just like a quick add on on that is shaming drives secrecy in that case, because the person who has the desire is not going to bring it into that kind of a shaming response or if they're being shamed in other ways. But at the same time, you know, secrecy tends to bring fury I can't believe you, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it makes a bad situation worse. So I think it comes down to integrity of the person who, in this case, maybe wants to watch porn or wants to whatever, takes a hard stand and says, you know what, I know you don't like this and you don't get it, but this is important to me. And I I think we need to talk about it because I don't want to do it without you knowing it. I don't want to do it behind your back. That's not who I want to be. And then for the partner who's on the receiving end to say, this scares the hell out of me, or I think it's terrible, or I think you're terrible, or I don't get it, or I don't know why you need it, but like, I'm going to keep my head on and we're going to actually like talk this through. Yeah. And maybe it means being good to each other in some other ways too. Mm-hmm. But talk it through using your own values and hearing each other's understanding. I like what you're saying instead of the secretness or things going underneath the surface and... Do you find in your work with couples with non-ADHD and ADHD couples, do you find sexual conflicts higher than in the regular population that you see, maybe that's not struggling with ADHD? 
I think it is. I mean, I think if I had to say one or the other, I'd say, yeah. And I think it's just the reflection of the other relationship struggles that they have makes it harder for them to connect sexually because they're not connecting sexually. Then it comes back to the relationship. Right. Do you think it is also, though, some of the report that you're saying that somebody with ADHD tends to want more stimulation? I guess that's me summarizing a lot of results that you found, but wanting more stimulation or being responsive to more stimulation and that creating a sense of a potential disconnection if not handled well. Right. So this is actually a really interesting thing is that when the woman has ADHD, and therefore, on average, a higher sexual eagerness. And with a man who doesn't have ADHD, their level of sexual eagerness is more similar. Whereas when it's the guy who has ADHD has the highest level of sexual eagerness, and the non-ADHD woman in these out of these four types of people in my survey has the lowest sexual eagerness, those folks struggle much more. Because that is, it's a much bigger difference to bridge. And when the woman has ADHD, they have sex 25% more often than when the man has ADHD. I think some of it is this sexual eagerness stuff that the couple, when the woman has ADHD, is more similar to each other. I think some of it also has to do with when the man has ADHD, the woman is more likely to feel burdened by picking up the additional slack in the relationship, to feel more neglected, to feel like her needs aren't being met. And either because whether she's pissed or just because she's tired, there's just less of her energy goes into their sex life. Did you find anything about uh, same sex or non-binary couples, transgender, any results in that direction? You know, unfortunately not. I did make the survey open to same sex couples and I just didn't get enough responses to be able to do any meaningful statistical analysis. So, so I can't comment directly. I think the, the cop-out obvious answer is very much of this still applies to those couples and also very much doesn't. So I think that's kind of where we're at, which is like the non-answer. Okay. Well, for those out there that are listening and going, oh my gosh, I think this sounds like me or this sounds like my partner, what would you recommend? What were the first steps? I think first step, go to the CHAD site, chadd.org, which is the National ADHD Organization, and really look at whether, you know, they have a lot of information about ADHD. On my website, adultadhdbook.com, I also have a lot of information about ADHD. So whatever reputable place you get it, like definitely educate yourself about it. And even if you know about ADHD and you've been diagnosed 15 years ago, still educate yourself about it, educate your partner about it, work together on it. Definitely the more you know, the better off you're going to be. But I think also if it's impacting your relationship and your sex life, you know, I've got a bunch of stuff on my website there. I've got some recordings and I've got my book, ADHD After Dark. Like this is important stuff. It's serious stuff. And, you know, if you have a partner who's maybe not so down on this whole ADHD thing, maybe talking about it from this perspective and that they're going to have more sex if you work better together. I don't know. For some people, maybe that's a convincing sales pitch when nothing right. else was. When nothing else was. Okay. And I guess going to, to get assessed, I think your your amount of information that you have is really going to help people get insight to whether this really applies to them and may motivate them to go and get a formal assessment through a psychologist. Yeah. Yeah. Most adults with ADHD are not diagnosed. There's lots of them out there. They often get diagnosed from their kids. 
kid gets diagnosed and one parent says, huh, that sounds familiar. Well, what I hope is that more parents hearing you reading your books or listening and getting educated on these things, it takes the shame at it, it takes the stigma and increases the motivation to say this actually could really make a difference in our lives rather than something to avoid. Right. Definitely. Exactly. All right. Well, we will have all of your information on our show notes. So if anyone wants to reach out to you directly, where should they reach out to you? Really best place is, you know, check out my stuff on adultadhdbook.com and you can send me an email from there. So that's an easy, easy way to do it. All right. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. It was just a really, really enlightening and what an important topic. So we might be coming back to you to hear more in the future to go maybe even deeper into your book on ADHD after dark, better sex life, better relationships. What a great title. Well, it was great to be here. I feel proud to be part of your esteemed guest list. And just to be, you know, spending an hour talking to you was awesome. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really enjoyed that discussion with Dr. Tuckman. I hope you did too. Be sure to check out the show notes and there you will find all the information about him, including his list of books, his podcast, and any information about getting a hold of him. If this is a podcast episode or in general, if you find Therapist Uncensored helpful, please rate and review and send it to anybody else that you find might find this information truly helpful. And I'd like to do a big shout out to our Patreon members and those of you that have been able to support us during all this time. We sure appreciate it. It's a labor of love and your support helps keep us rolling. And for those of you that might be able to become a member, get closer access to us, but also just help support us getting security out one episode at a time, far and wide, which we need a lot of right now. We'd really appreciate it. You can jump on our website at www.therapistuncensored.com and you'll find all the information about becoming a Patreon member there. All right. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. 